You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Park and me, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. So this week we're actually recording early. It's only Thursday evening. Normally we record on the Saturday. So just please keep that in mind as you listen to our conversations. There may be a few things that we won't be aware of as we record this early. Also, as a little reminder, if you missed last week's episode with Moritz, I invite you to go back and listen to that one. We had some really great questions from you, and they were a little bit different as well. So I'm sure you will enjoy that conversation. Jerry, always great to be with you, of course. And how are you doing? How are things where you are? These are good here in Florida. It's very nice time of year to be here. It's a little warm, but we're getting a lot of rain as well. But everything's going well. And I don't see this outbreak of COVID around me. I know Florida gets a lot of negative press along with Texas. One third of all cases in the US come from Florida and Texas. So really, okay. I haven't seen uh, it impact me, but yeah, hopefully that's it'll good. stay that way. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I heard from my colleagues earlier this week that it had been pretty wet uh, recently in terms of the weather. So a good time to stay indoors perhaps and watch some of the Olympics. Is any of that coming your way? I know you like sports. Of course, they don't have ice hockey. They do have basketball, I guess. <laughs> Maybe not quite the same standard as you're used to. But is there anything when you watch all of these different sports happening that kind of tickles your fancy or whatever you call it? Yes. You know, I like the Olympics and baseball, so I'm watching a little bit of both. And the one thing I've noticed in the Olympics is that some of these races, I think it's not just uh, track and field, but it could be swimming as well, where the all the medal winners will have set a new world's record. So it's very fast conditions in Tokyo, at least on the track. And uh, it's really fun. Americans are doing well. So that's fun as well to to watch. The Olympics. And I really, you know, it's kind of fun watching sports. The Olympics is a little bit like trend followers, you know, we're off the beaten path. Some of these sports you don't, you only see every, every four years. And that's particularly fun. I, I'm not interested in golf as much in the Olympics, but, you know, some of the more exotic sports, the smaller minor sports, they're fun to watch every four years. Yeah, I completely agree. There's a couple of things that kind of reminds me of whether I see some similarities. I mean, of course, you, listen to some of these athletes after their events and the dedication and the discipline that they apply for years and years is just incredible. Of course, they're, you know, what they achieve is incredible, but it just shows you uh, how much it really takes to become that, that good. Uh, the other thing I thought was quite interesting is that I actually I agree with you completely that there's been a lot of world records where you think, wow, so suddenly someone jumps like 20 centimeters longer than anyone else in the world or higher or whatever. And you think, why now? It's it's quite incredible. But I also find that some of the sports that I would never watch 
in between the four years. Like some of the sailing competitions have been absolutely riveting in terms of excitement and how close they are in their races. So it's been fun. Of course, we also have fun in the market. So there's always that if we need a little bit of excitement in our lives. You're about to say something, Jerry? No, just I was just going to agree with you. The markets are fun and the Olympics are fun, but I think the Olympics causes me less stress than the markets. Yes, I can attest to that. Now, since it is kind of in, it feels like it's in the middle of the week. I know it's only one day left of the week, but I kind of decided to leave out this week's kind of market wrap. I don't think a lot of things have happened. I do want to just certainly give a shout out to Woody and T-Tang, who left some really nice rating and reviews uh, this week that I saw. And we are, of course, incredibly grateful for these. And they motivate us to keep going. They help us to grow our community. So perhaps I can once again ask anyone who may not have left a rating and review in iTunes, please spend a few minutes to do that after you listen to today's conversation. It really means a lot. And as I mentioned, I was going to skip the usual market wrap because I don't think anything kind of dramatic has happened. But then I also saw a little bit wider because I know you trade the crypto currencies or at least one of them, maybe more now. But I did see that things like Ethereum has done particularly well in the last few weeks, up quite strongly. And as people who may have heard on the last episode with Moritz, he's added Ethereum to his portfolio so I was going to start out by asking you, Jerry, whether you have followed suit or whether you are considering going into that in that direction as well. I added Ethereum when it came on as a futures contract. Oh, okay, but I haven't put the position on yet. So okay, I was going to trans transfer out of maybe like uh, I give the Bitcoin a heavy weighting in my portfolio to its lack of correlation. So. I have I trade every market the same size, except 15 markets or so. I trade twice as large. So there's nothing like lumber, Bitcoin, palladium. You know, maybe people will disagree with some of my 15 or 13, whatever it is. But I was going to ask Moritz to give me some advice. Is Ether correlated to Bitcoin? So I'll trade them both twice as large, or should I cut back my Bitcoin? Maybe not in half, but move some of that risk budget over to Ether. I'll probably at least do that. But I'm kind of waiting for a brand new signal. And I'm still long Bitcoin, and I would still be long a bit of Ether as well. So mid-trade, I like to be very careful mid-trade. Or when I add something to my list, if it's been in a big, huge outlier uptrend or making lots of money, I'll probably wait for the next trade. There's no great way to handle that situation. But it does look like Ether is different. I've heard that from my friends, and it looks a tad bit different on the chart. But it does look like these cryptos are making a run again. Are they holding you know, from the lows of the low 30,000s now up to 41,000 in Bitcoin futures? So another thing I thought was pretty interesting this week, I don't know if you saw this, but the chairman of the SEC said he would consider a Bitcoin futures ETF, but not a Bitcoin cash ETF. I thought that was pretty funny. So all of a sudden, futures are, more, are safer than any of the alternatives. That is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to speak 
for Moritz regarding that. But on the podcast we did a few days ago, he did talk about that he had moved some of his risk from Bitcoin to Ether. We didn't talk about the correlation between the two. I think they can, like so many other markets, sometimes be highly correlated, other times maybe not so. But clearly what's going on in Ether at the moment with this new protocol or whatever uh, they call it, where there's definitely a change happening to the underlying protocol. And that's obviously spurred some bullish trends, you can certainly say. In terms of performance, I'm going to leave out the usual stuff, except I will quickly update on my own trend following model. The data is, of course, as of uh, Wednesday night, so nothing relating to Thursday, but the model is up 0.67 for the month. It's up 12.44 for the year. All three model groups are making uh, a bit of money so far in August. 0.3 in model uh, group one, 0.3 in group two, and just a few basis points in group three. It's bonds and equities doing best. The worst sectors, really just one sector, it's the base metals. Single markets that are standing out so far is uh, on the positive side, Australian SPY, Swiss market index, and NASDAQ. So definitely an equity theme there. And the worst market right now, or the worst markets, are really copper and DAX. And in terms of activity so far this month, it started out the week buying a bit of SPY, some euro dollar, the interest rate contract, not the currency, and also some German Bunds. Tuesday bought some more euro dollar and some Japanese yen. And yesterday, which was yesterday, there were no trades. Your favorite statistic, Jerry, or, or soon becoming your favorite statistic, the risk to stop, it is at the moment 11.16%, which is up from 9.91%, I believe it was last week. So, yeah, nothing too dramatic on that. Now, we've got some questions. You brought some topics. I have some topics if we want, if we have time for that. But we have some questions from Mark and a repeat question from Statius that I brought up with Moritz. I want to hear your thoughts on coming up. But I wanted to start out today kicking off with kind of a theme that was first brought off a couple of weeks ago when Richard joined the podcast. And he and his colleague Fred had done some research into the question about edge. Where does it really lie in trend following? Is it in our models or is it in the market data? Certainly that's something that Rich seems to have found some evidence of. And it's not a black or white question, I think, but I would be interested in hearing your thoughts. I'm happy to summarize if you want what kind of their thinking is. But if you're completely up to speed on that, you can jump right in. Yeah, well, it's interesting you bring that up because I'm fascinated by these new topics that uh, Richard can come up with and the way he describes them. You know, we're not always 100% on the same page. He sure. We'll, we'll have a, a gentleman's discussion tomorrow on Clubhouse about some, I think, a topic we kind of disagree on. But it's really fascinating. And I've been reading his tweets and then his commentary on a similar idea that we got from uh, TransTrend, I think. And I think it's fairly obvious, I'm going to come at it from a, a simpler point of view, but that, yeah, this edge that we have is in the outliers, it's in the trends, all the trend following systems, they make about the same amount of money if it's medium to sort of longish term. Now, you can have some obvious mistakes in your approach, but it's really difficult 
to uh, not do pretty well with a basic trend following approach, you know, if you're hitting these outlier trades. And if you're not hitting them, then you're not going to do very well. It's the markets. I used to say that there are heroes. And of course, if it's the markets, it's in the markets data that these outliers and, and these um, other terms that Richard uses that escape me right now that, yeah, of course, we just have to overlay this uh, taking small losses and letting profits run idea on top of, you know, the the data, what's, you know, what's happening in the in the past for the back test, what's going to happen in the future, hopefully about the same thing. And then, as he says, everything else is kind of random, a junk. I like that. What do you think? Yeah, so my thoughts were that yes and no. <laughs> okay, so let me explain that. So yes, there is definitely something within the data because when you randomize the data, at least according to his research, the same models that are profitable on normal data become unprofitable when you randomize the data. So you lose something when you randomize. And to me, that's the autocorrelation that exists because that is part of what we can capture through our process. So so you can say it's in the data. Maybe there's definitely something to that, but I think it's the autocorrelation specifically that's in the data that we want to capture. And so we don't want to lose that. Exactly. And I'm not impressed necessarily. I mean, it took me forever to understand what he and my other friend Derek were saying on a clubhouse last week about this subject. And I finally heard what they were saying with that. I kept asking them these silly questions, and there was, and, uh, but they kept saying, well, no, here's the deal. It doesn't work if we randomize the data. And so I'm not impressed by that. You know? right. If we take random data, and we, or we take data and we take out the trends, then yeah, it's not going to work. So I'm not so sure that's great proof, but these guys are way above me in, in their mathematical minds. And so I even heard someone today sort of insinuate that breakouts and momentum are physics. Oh my gosh. So I didn't, I never took a physics class. I'm not that great with math. So I'll leave it up to those experts, but I don't, I can't understand how I should be overwhelmed by uh, that when it doesn't work, that proves something. Yeah. I'm right. sure about that. So I'll take it one step further. First of all, don't sell yourself short here, Jerry. But anyways, I think to me, what is interesting or what is mainly interesting to me about what Richard is saying from his research is that to the naked eye, you actually can't visually see the difference between a randomized a set of data and the real data, meaning they both look like they have trending periods in them when you see it visually. And so I think that is kind of interesting, right? Because when you, if you, I mean, maybe we, this is a bad example, but if you look at Cocoa the last five years, I mean, it's been range trading for, you know, forever. And there's just been no big trends. But if you had a certain time frame that wasn't too long, maybe you could extract some profits from that. I, I don't know. But I think that to people who don't sit watching these things on a daily basis, and certainly, you know, many of our investors, they don't do that because they invest in so many other things. When they look at the markets and then they look at performance of trend followers, they might actually say to themselves, how come that they're not more profitable? So, so I do think it's just an interesting observation that what looks to be you know, a normal trending environment, but it's based on randomized data, actually is not that profitable for us to trade. 
So I think it could be used in those kind of conversations to explain a little bit more about what it takes to profit in these markets as a trend follower. That's the main thing for me. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I forgot about that other point that you brought up, that it it still looks like there are big trends. Yeah, and yeah, I'm not impressed by that either because I was taught in 1983 that you just because it looks like something is trendy or the markets are trending, it doesn't mean that we're going to make money trend following. You know, too many false breakouts, very low win percentage, because due to too many false breakouts, oh, we'll always have trends. Can we capture them? Can we use the same systems to capture them that are risk adjusted? You know, the drawdowns are not too huge. And, and if we have to use, trade shorter term in order to capture them, are we going to get chopped up and whipsawed? So it's, you have to use that back test. And I would advise no one to kind of even look at a chart other than if you're going to say something like, oh, I see trends there, so trend following must work. No, that's not a good idea. You need to do a back test to see if your parameters of your system is going to be able to capture those trends in an efficient way. So let me go a little bit off uh, script here, Jerry, because I'm just curious. It's not something that, and maybe it's, you know, we're not the best people to answer this uh, since none of us uh, has a PhD here. But if we say, if what we've say, and, and you and I know this from many years ago, it's been around for a long time, that this thing called autocorrelation is really important when it comes to, to trend following and so on and so forth. So if that's the key, if we want to trade markets that exhibit high levels of autocorrelation, is there some way that you've come across that you can objectively measure the autocorrelation in that market other than, of course, just doing a backtest of a system and see whether it's really profitable. Is there something else we could do? Because if there is this thing where we could say, well, not all markets are equal, then maybe we should be thinking about market selection slightly differently to how we're thinking about it today. Why add all of these markets if many of them don't exhibit very strong autocorrelation and therefore won't be as profitable as other markets, perhaps, is this also, I mean, the next thing you could ask yourself is, does some of these newer alternative markets that we know some managers have embraced a lot, including, you could say, things like the cryptos, do they exhibit higher levels of autocorrelation? And, and because, of course, autocorrelation is also another way of actually describing human behavior to some degree, which we know is why trend following but works deep down. So I'm just curious to find out whether there are other ways we should look at this thing called market selection for our portfolios if we are in specifically searching for markets that exhibit high levels of autocorrelation over long periods of time. Oh, this is a very good topic. Yeah, you hit on a really good topic now. And we should be posing some of these questions to Richard because I never heard of autocorrelation in 1983, Niels. So right. I'm yes. skeptical if, <laughs> if this is a great explanation. Um, I'm just skeptical. It probably is. But, oh no, I cannot go with that. Your idea is where you're headed because all markets make the same amount of money. We're trading all the markets, the same systems, in order to get this sample size. And so in order to make both of these concepts uh, work and not contradict each other, I'll have to think that this autocorrelation is to be assumed to be in all markets. 
And if any markets exhibit more autocorrelation historically, it just means that the ones that don't will start eventually, and they'll all sort of start exhibiting the same amount of autocorrelation in the future. In the next 100 years, they're all going to be, you know, we say they all make the same amount of money, but not in the back test. But they will, going forward, with 50, 100, 150 years worth of data, all of the markets will exhibit the same uh, profitability, average trade and win-loss ratio and things like that. So we have to tell ourselves that and believe that because we are banking on this sample size and our ability to treat all the markets the same. This put your hand over top of the name of the market. You don't even need to know what the name of the market is. You know, Coco's had 19 losers in a row, according to someone I think on Twitter. It was Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's with the 40 in, 20 out yeah. system, but yeah. it hasn't been much better in my system either. But the whole point of the cornerstone of trend following is that you take that cocoa trade every single time, just like you're taking all those uh, grain trades in last October, irrespective of the fact that they sucked for 10 years. Well, they're awesome now. And so, so there is no autocorrelation specific to any market and getting rid of some and emphasizing others based upon that. I don't agree with that, but maybe Richard would agree with that. But I want to stay on this a little bit because I actually find it quite interesting. So because one of my follow-up questions, because we have the same belief at Don that you expressed that all markets have the same opportunity to trend and will exhibit, you know, over the long term, same levels of profitability. But the question is, of course, yeah, okay, but over how long of a period? Because none of us have been trading for 400 years, 150 years, right? So you kind of answered that already. And and, and I think the answer is it's a really long period of time to make that statement and to see that evidence. And none of us will probably be around to ever see that. So it's a belief to some extent. I don't think we can say categorically that we have evidence for this, but it's a belief. But the other thing that it kind of triggers me to ask you your thoughts on, and that is we know that some firms have embraced quote-unquote alternative markets like the Chinese futures markets, et cetera, et cetera. There's been a lot of interest in doing so. And some of those firms have done really well relative to traditional trend-following managers staying sort of more narrowly focused on the usual suspects in their portfolio. So the question is, so what, you know, they must have felt when they pursue these alternative markets, which have some drawbacks in terms of liquidity and maybe cost, et cetera, et cetera, that they are more trending, that they will give them a better return than just adding another bond or another equity market or whatever. Or, or how do you see that? Why else would they go after those specific markets, do you think? I think I'll just start by saying, I'm going to say something negative, but I do think we should trade all those markets. I do I do trade a lot of the illiquid markets, milk, rough rice, OJ, feeder cattle. I would trade China in a heartbeat. It's a great idea to do that. However, there is a, a reason to, to do that, and it is to be different and for marketing purposes. And Right. There's some firms who have come out and said, we trade you know, an unbelievable number of markets, 300, 400 markets, and we no longer trade perfectly wonderful markets in the US and Europe. Sugar, you know, cocoa, coffee, these things that are 
not correlated to hardly anything else, and they're perfectly fine. And so we're only trading these exotic markets. And so I have read what they in interviews and seen them in podcasts where they will say, not only you know adding trading diverse markets, adding markets to your portfolio, not only is that a good idea for obvious reasons, but they these markets do trend better. I'm very skeptical of that. I don't really think so. But reminds me of a podcast you did a week or so ago. And I think Richard said, or someone was saying, add all the markets. If we need to trade every single liquid market in order to hunt down these trends. And then your response was, well, I think 50 or 60 are fine. <laughs> so, you know, this is one of those things. He's going to say it. I'm going to say it. Moritz is going to say it. You're going to say yeah. what you're going to say. So I do think that you're correct. I do think that if you trade these broad sectors over a, a long period of time, this trading all these small markets is not going to look that much better. It's going to, it'll be a close call, a little bit better, even a little bit worse. However, on a year by year basis, adding in these smaller markets, trading all the energy, all the metals, every single agriculture and commodity you can get your hands on is going to make your annual performance probably a little bit better. Minimally, it'll make it a little bit less volatile. It'll be a smoother ride. All the markets make the same amount of money. So throw that back at me. Yes, I, that's exactly right. So if I only trade 65, where is the real downside? Not a real downside over a long period of time. Or it could be over a short period of time that your emphasis on just trading crude, for instance, I know you don't do that, but just trading uh, fewer markets in a particular sector, it actually could help over a short period of time. But giving trend-following philosophy, trading as many of these markets as possible, hunting down as many of these trends as possible, that is a little bit better than trading fewer markets. So I get that, and I agree with that. But like you said, it's a law of diminishing returns. You know, Every time I add a market, I trade all the other markets a tad bit smaller. You know, and you've mentioned this many times. Your overall risk budget could be a little bit larger if you traded 100 markets versus 50. But you could also say, I'm going to trade the same risk, max risk budget with 50. I'll just accept a little bit more volatility. Sure. I like that answer a lot, Jerry. All right, let's jump to some questions. So the first one here is from Mark. Mark writes, first, congratulations on a fantastic podcast. I particularly like that the TTU team does not always have the same opinion as listening to such knowledgeable people debate and sometimes nuanced aspects of trend following greatly adds to our understanding of the topic. While trend following systems are sometimes described as simple, one entry, one exit, a stop loss, they are not necessarily easy in practice. As they say, the devil is often in the details. I'm wondering if you and the team might share some experiences of devilish details they've learned over the years of applying trend following, things that someone with a good handle on the theory, i.e. signal generation, position sizing, but little practical market experience may not have come across. And then Mark goes on to ask for other places than Apple to leave ratings and reviews. So let me ask that answer that first, uh, Mark. All the po podcast platforms... Obviously, you can listen to the podcast there. If Spotify and some of the other ones allows uh, rating and reviews, I don't know personally, but obviously we're grateful wherever you might leave uh, a rating and review. So, 
Jerry, sort of things that only really get taught by experience, could even be painful experience. What kind of comes to mind when you hear that question? Well, I think maybe I missed the question. Well, the question is that, you know, he has a good idea about the theory, but he may not have much practical experience. And maybe there are certain things we've learned over the years in terms of from the practical experience that, you know, could be useful for someone like uh, Mark to hear about. Oh, yeah. Nothing comes to mind other than I love these breakout systems and you could get almost any software, any quote machine that you can put a breakout channel on the systems and come up with a kind of a medium to long-term approach for that. And the amount of diversification you can get in stocks and some ETFs that even have commodities and currencies and bond ETFs. It's kind of amazing how you can put together something pretty quickly. And then you'll just be faced with the same thing we've all been faced with our entire career. And that is, are you going to follow the system? Are you going to not trade too large? And are you going to hang on to your winning trades as long as you possibly can and not try to get out too quickly? So that's pretty practical advice. I don't really, maybe I'm missing the point of the question. No, I mean, that's perfectly fine. I was also, Mark, as I was reading the question, thinking about what are some of the things that, you know, that you just um, only really get exposure to or learn from doing it day in, um, day out. And one of the things, and this is not new, it applies to many things, but one of the things that I always found staggering is actually when you hear about what happens to the performance of, it could be a trend-following system, it could be many other invest investments, but if you miss, say, the 10 best days or the 10 best months, et cetera, et cetera, how dramatically your performance changes. So I think that's one thing that that I think is really important, and that is just make sure that you have a setup that allows you to do this every single day so you don't miss you know, a bigger opportunity. The other thing for me, and I think this is still something that I, I, I believe a lot of people are not aware of when they hear us talk about trend following, when they hear the concepts, and they may actually make logical sense to people. And then they uh, might pick up from, you know, people selling them systems or, or writing books about it, whatever it might be. And they get the impression that trend following as a concept, you can go and you can apply that to a single stock. You can apply that to three or four markets, et cetera, et cetera, and you should get a good result. And although we would say that it's better than nothing having rules like, you know, uh, stop losses and, and, and letting your winners run, those concepts, of course, are important, whatever you do. But I do think people underestimate the value of what Jerry and I just talked about, and that is the value of diversification. Trend following, in my opinion, does not work on a few markets. It really only works in the long run if you have a fully diversified portfolio. Otherwise, there's just simply too much lock or unlock involved in the return stream. So that's one thing I would say that keeps surprising me to, to some extent. Yeah, I think that people just embrace stocks only so often and they're just missing out on so much uh, diversification and risk control and fun. I was listening to a podcast today about uh, commodities and the, the, the uh, opportunity in the future for commodities, super cycle, none of which I pay any attention to. If there is a super cycle in commodities, there's no way I'm going to stay long for the for this duration of this super cycle. You know, I'm going to be getting, I have a long-term system and I'll guarantee you I'll be getting out, going short, getting, having to get right back in. But 
there was just uh, these institutional investors talking about investing in commodities and how there's almost no one left who trades commodities only or trades them discretionarily only. And there's been some high-profile traders go out of business over the past few years, right before the big um, bounce into commodities last fall. So, yeah, that's what happens is that um, you get too overweighted and you become an expert and you can't uh, embrace the kind of trend-following method that makes you sort of trade all the markets. You need to trade all of them and you need to use a systematic approach that doesn't um, require any uh, expertise in any of any one individual market or group of markets. So you're just putting yourself in such a safer uh, environment when you embrace rules-based and the need to trade all the markets with these rules. And it's just kind of funny that the world's greatest commodity traders know nothing about the commodities themselves. Yeah, and, and right, exactly. And it's also interesting to me, at least, that there are a lot of people talking about opportunities and commodities. And of course, after the last sort of uh, 9, 10, 11, 12 months with these uh, breakouts we saw, commodities have certainly had a little bit of a um, resurgence uh, in terms of news items on mainstream media. And therefore, also a lot of advisors are talking about how do we get exposure to commodities. What's interesting is there doesn't seem to be any more demand for as you say, commodity trading advisors, even though you would think that should be one of the first calls you make if you want to get exposure to commodities. The whole idea of getting exposure to commodities is just wrong-headed. You want to get exposure to trends and outlier trades. And you why would you, as a professional, ever assume that you should have less diversification than you can possibly have? And what's wrong with commodities? Because buy and hold commodities doesn't work like buy and hold stocks. And you're going to not pay attention to a handful of other perfectly great ways of corralling those commodity returns. I don't want to be a person who sells myself and as a non-predictive trend follower, but all, everything I talk about marketing-wise is predictive fundamentals. So I don't want to. St I like articles that are great that talk about commodities and talk about a super cycle. But come on, honestly. We're just following these trends and we could be short these things. You know, how did you get short? You talk such a big game about this sea change, you know, and for the for many years to come in commodities. We should just be talking about the trends and leave all that other stuff to people who uh, think they know more. And I guess some people do know more about they are fundamental traders in commodities, but I'll guarantee you one thing, they take small losses. Yeah. Let's move on to a question. So this question came up last week. So people will have heard the question before, but I actually thought that it's it's interesting to just bring it up because I know that Statius, who sent it in, also wanted to hear your opinion, of course. So Statius asked about when you when do you know a strategy is robust based on a live track record when you haven't done a backtest? And I know you often say, Jerry, that you don't really test new things. You kind of rather, and, and I may be misquoting you here, so, so please correct me, but you rather look at the charts to see if the market exhibits a trending behavior. And if it does, you're comfortable adding that to your portfolio, of course, paraphrasing here. But given what we discussed earlier with Rich's findings, that when you randomize the market data, you seem to lose the performance of a trend-following model, or at least the ones he tested. But at the same time, the data looks similar, as we discussed. Does this 
inspire you to think twice about just eyeballing market charts because they may look great? Or how do you just help stashers out who I think does already trade, has done for a while, but maybe not have the capabilities right now to go back and do a really long-term backtest of, of his system? Well, I add markets without doing a back test on any individual market. I'll add markets as long as they're add diversification. I know I, with my current stock portfolio, a lot of these are newer companies. And I think that when I did the back test on my current group of single stocks, they didn't perform very well in the back test. But I would say, screw that. I don't care. They add diversification. Um, they're different. They're not as correlated to the S&P as my previous group. So full speed ahead on that. And over the years, I've added markets one or two a year, and I never added. I never, I added them if they added diversification and were not and less and they were less correlated. But I never would kick a market out based upon its perfor historical performance in the back test. Now, but just to clarify one thing, I have done many back tests, and my systems that I use they test out pretty well in the back test. My comment I made once was that. Before I did the back test, I just put up some breakout channels to get an indication of what it looked like to me would be a good time frame, a good look back period. 50 day look back, too short term. 300 day look back, unnecessarily long term. So somewhere in the middle between this 50 day breakout, 300 day breakout, I said, you know, I think 100 looks good, 150 looks good. And then when I did the back test, that was confirmed. So I don't want to pay too much attention to the back test and believe it as some sort of gospel as what's going to happen in the future. But I've definitely done them to so I could feel good about the parameters I've chosen. Yeah, no, that makes perfect uh, sense. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully that's just you at some point will be able to do some level of back test just to give you further confidence. But as long as the live data is as you would expect it to be, I think that's a good indication that you're on to something there. Now, Jerry, you've got a few things you wanted to bring up. These are things that you tweeted about in the last week or so. So they are um, very interesting. Love to hear your thoughts about them. I can sort of give you a little bit of a, a heads up, uh, those of you who uh, listen to what these, these tweets are about. And then we can hear Jerry's thoughts on it. And also maybe if you know some of the reactions, whether there were any pushback or agreements with these. But one of the first ones you wrote was uh, about your favorite reward risk metric, the rate of return divided by capital account max drawdown. You write capital account equals total equity minus open trade PL. Capital account equals initial investment plus realized PL. It doesn't penalize open trade volatility. Yeah, I'm just continuing to fight this battle to not pay attention to open trades in, in, in order to let my profits run. I don't think it's fair to be penalized for executing one of the tenets of trend following, which is let them run, which insinuates that it's not like this small losses that you're planning on taking 50 basis points. Oh, no. If you have a trailing stop that's the 100-day low, well, you could have you know, hundreds of basis points sell off. And should you do something about that or should you wait till your system 
trailing stop gets hit. And so I think that measuring our performance using sharp or any kind of any performance, upside volatility, downside volatility, I don't care what it is, no volatility, no returns. It has to just be based upon how we preserve in capital and trying to define capital as our you know, initial investment plus the realized P&L, and then the drawdown in that. And I do think that the drawdown in some of these big profits, you know, how do you handle these big profitable trades like Bitcoin and lumber? Of course, we're going to get penalized on the rate of return, the numerator side. Yeah, you didn't do very well. You didn't make enough money in, your, in those outlier trades. But I don't think we should also get penalized for that somehow calling that risk. And, and I did get pushback that drawdown from peak drawdown from an open trade profit is risk, but I don't know. There was no, uh, and I'll have to go to my friend and ask, what do you mean? Why? How? So I'm still uh, going to be a big advocate for this logical extension of letting your profits run. You can't tell me to let my profits run, that all the trades come in these great outliers and don't get out of your trades too quickly aha but i'm penalizing you for the drawdown in that trade what that's that's crazy and i've mentioned many times you know if you're a real client or a real human without a phd or not take your phd hat off you know a, a drawdown from you know from a profitable trade that leaves you positive you know that leaves you making money for your client even though it's maybe been a 20 or 30 or 40 percent drawdown is much better than telling your client, oh, the million dollars you gave me, now it's 900,000. It's just a 10% drawdown, but bad Jerry over there, he had a 40% drawdown, but his clients are up 20% for the year. Well, you know, everybody's going to say, I'll, that's much different. You're eating into my $1 million capital versus now you've run my 1 million up to a million, two or three, but it's been a healthy drawdown. So I think in the real world with real people, away from our Excel spreadsheets, I still like my point of view. Yeah, and speaking of which, I think long-term listeners will know that you've explained how you, for example, you don't trade or you don't change your trade size if you have lots of open profits. You wait until some of that gets realized. So I was curious whether, and you may not be aware of this, but uh, what's give, what's happened this year some of these very strong trends, like you mentioned, uh, lumber, and there's a few other uh, markets where we've seen sort of decent-sized pullbacks, even in the crypto space earlier this year. Has that allowed you to get to a point where you could change your kind of quote-unquote trade size or account size, if you know what I mean? Because now that the open profits are not that huge compared to what they were, or stops have moved closer or whatever it might be. Yeah, I'm getting there, but I still have lots of open profit in the, in the grains, for instance, and the base metals. Okay. So, you know, to me, it's like when I get a an investment. Let's say, you know, when you start your business and you get a one million dollar investment, and you start trading. You know, you're defending that line. You're defending that one million dollars. And in order to let those profits run and take the small losses, you know, you're going to have some volatility. But as long as it's above the one million dollars. Then I think you know that's much different. If you're below your initial capital, your, the initial investment, then you need to trade smaller, or you know you still want to follow the system, but maybe you're in a defensive mode. But you can be pretty aggressive as long as you're above that. And then at some point in time, you've made everybody, all of your clients, twenty percent. So now it's you know the example of now it's a million two hundred thousand. Now that's your new line. 
is did that happen in two or three months? Is it happened in two or three years? You may these trades may go on and make tons of money and with lots and lots of volatility. So we want to be slow to move that trade level up, that line that we're going to defend and say, okay, I'm defending this line, but anything above it, oh no, I'm letting my profits run. So I think you can systematize that, and I have systematized it, but I'm just trying to give out the philosophy of what's going on here, continuing to look at all of these trends and your peak equity as something to defend. Yeah, you're in trouble. You're not going to be able to let profits run. You're going to have to vol target. You're going to have to come in with an overlay of money management that essentially prevents you from doing the system trades because the system trades will allow nice drawdowns. And you're, if you're defending all-time highs and equity highs and, oh my gosh, we're down 20%. Yeah, but are you up 30 over the last 12 months? And this is how trend following behaves. Yeah, I'm down 20 but I'm up 30 from the last 12 months. And this is going to be a frequent occurrence if you let your profits run. And it just needs to be handled in a way that is faithful to the system and realizes that we're in this game to make money. And I, I think that there's nothing more counter to trend following than something like the sharp ratio. Yeah, no, I think we can, uh, many will agree on that. And it kind of nicely ties into one of the other tweets you put which is something, and, and maybe there's a study behind it. I'm not familiar with the study or whether this is your study, so to speak. But the tweet was, when it comes to trend-following CTAs, being a purist is the right approach. The closer to pure trend, the better. CTAs that are more unique tend to underperform. So I guess that kind of confirms what you said in, in some ways there. Don't overcomplicate your systems. Just stick to the simple logic of what we do. Yeah, so this was a paper I tweeted. It's a few years old. I think I've tweeted it before, but I found it in some more commentary about it on a trader's website. And what I took away from this, and they mentioned this in the article in the paper as well, that the reason that more of a pure trend following works so well is because of momentum. It was just the strength of the momentum that nothing was as good as following the trends and finding the outliers. And so the more of that that you have, uh, the more money you're going to make, even though people would rightfully possibly be able to see some benefit in, in adding some other non-trend strategies to the portfolio, because that would make smooth things out. And once again, it would help the sharp, which, you know, which I'm not against it so much in a portfolio setting maybe, but CTA should be one part of that portfolio. And it does kind of bum me out that of all the strategies, the hedge fund strategies, I don't know of another one that, unlike CTAs, that have felt the need at times to add other strategies to their core strategy. I mean, could you imagine a PE hedge fund saying, oh yeah, we're going to do, we're going to add something to our private equity fund like mean reversion or the carry trade in order to smooth out our returns. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. No one does this but us. Maybe some others do, but I just found it kind of a, a bummer that we feel like we need to do that. You know, we have some volatility. We have some uniqueness. Throw us in your portfolio of other things and judge how we impact the portfolio. And we should not be feeding into this idea that just choose the CTAs with the highest sharp ratio and put those in your portfolio. And we've already talked about how adding high sharp things doesn't really necessarily make the portfolio sharp better. So I think that the more, you know, 
a pure trend that you have and the more, and of course, from my point of view, the more pure your trend is, the more robust it's going to be and more reliable it's going to be. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, the more difficult it's going to be to stick with, which is why people probably need to leave that to people who are comfortable doing it. But I like your point. And, and it's kind of funny because I've, n- I've never thought about it the way you just said that, yeah, we're, we're the only ones who feels we need to add something extra to what we do. And in, in another way, you could say that, and I do think that's true, that we as an industry or we as trend followers, maybe we've never felt that we're quite good enough and that investors probably didn't feel that we were good enough, so to speak. And this is what then some managers translate into, oh yeah, we need to then add something to make it better, quote unquote better. And that's kind of a funny way of looking at it because based on the evidence, based on your track record, our track record, and many other track records in our industry, we should be able to hold our heads pretty high and say, yeah, we're pretty good compared with anything, really. So I don't know why we feel as an industry that pure, just giving them what we do in a pure form isn't quite good enough. That's a very interesting observation. Well, I was just going to say, I think another thing that happens with the pure trend following, the as Moritz and I keep saying, one entry rule, one exit rule, and a stop loss, is that it's more reliable. I think you transfer some of the, the volatility and the, the peak to trough drawdowns, yep, you get those, but you also have a system that's um, more robust with fewer rules, fewer moving parts. And so it has a tendency to, be, to make money more often. That's one of the things that I have focused on in my entire career is one of my favorite metrics was my trailing uh, 12-month return, getting that positive 100% of the time. Well, uh, it, it's not going to be positive 100% of the time, but maybe 90, 95, or just uh, looking at the systems and the parameters that you can choose and seeing how they handle that idea of the trailing performance. And I think another thing that, that people never ask, never, what is the sharp of the S&P? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, why? You know and it's logical because it makes money all the dang time. It's outperforming all the time. What's the return? Well, on average, eight or so with a max drawdown of at least 50. Whoa, that sounds pretty bad. Yeah, but it's very consistent. And we're all locking arms and singing kumbaya that we all believe in this equity premium. And we all have a majority of our portfolio in equity. So if it all goes down, we're all in this together. Well, Maybe we, sh- we should do this a similar thing, and that is concentrate mostly on uh, trailing 12-month return, hitting these trends, irrespect- and holding on to them, irrespective of the volatility sometimes, and doing all we can to be very consistent with producing returns. And people would say, who cares about the max drawdown when they're always positive in a trailing, almost always positive, unlike any other investment over the past you know, 12 months. And with all the diversification we have, you would think that would also help go a long ways towards increasing our consistency. And I think it does. Yeah, sure. Another tweet of yours, the heading was loose pants fit everyone. I don't know if that was your words or someone else's words. And then it goes on to say, I want my trading uh, method to work in as many markets and situations as possible. 
And the more rules there are, the less likely that will happen. It does sound like you, Jerry, actually. The problem is loose pants look awful. <laughs> I think we're back to where we started. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, this is just one and the same. And But I got this loose pants fit everyone from you. Yeah, it's from Perry Kaufman. Yeah, exactly. I got it from you. And I loved it. And I, I must have heard about this before, but I give you all the credit. And I went out and I Googled. Oh. And you said something a little bit different, loose pants, something, fit, something. And so, but this is what I found from a website, which uh, on the tweet, I included the link. And I love that statement and it's a very good. And, and so, but I felt like that it really talks about, you know, being long-term and having a few rules and you're just going to essentially, what it's saying is it's fitting all these situations and these paths. And you and Richard have talked about this recently that the paths of these outliers can be infinite. And so let's keep that trailing stop not too close because it can go up and crash and go back up again. I mean, look at that UK natural gas chart. I was in that thing and it just skyrocketed and then completely crashed. Tesla, same thing. We've talked about it. Mm. You quoted mm. me on the Tesla yeah. on the podcast. Sure. Same thing. So a loose exit you know it's not too close it has to be far away look when you do the back test the computer says wonderful i love it this is a great we're not asking you to do something that the computer doesn't say you should do it in real time oh it's hell the problem with loose pants is they look awful oh let me tell you you apply that to trend following it feels awful it looks awful yes look at the track record of this huge volatility we know these traders that over the years, and we know one even currently that has tremendous crazy volatility, but you know they're making money and they're hanging on to these uh, trends. And in order to hit these outliers, you've got to be willing to feel awful and look awful. Indeed. Now I, I want to go. I want to go off topic a little bit, and just something that that came to mind. The other day, I was listening to a podcast conversation with Kyle Bass. Are you familiar with Kyle Bass? I am. Okay. So, I mean, he's a thoughtful guy, I think. And obviously, he's been very successful in his investing. But in the last few years, and this is a slightly political point, so so feel free to answer it or not. He's, of course, in the last few years been very, how should I put it gently, he's been very concerned about what's happening in, in China and how they are setting, making changes in places like Hong Kong, etc. And, 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 but I was just thinking, he makes the case that, you know, it's weird that we allow China to sell their debt to us. So we kind of help them do what we don't like, so to speak, them doing to certain parts of the world, etc., etc. And it kind of hit me when I heard that. I thought, well, hang on. Yeah, maybe Wall Street is doing it. But if I look at the CTA world, a lot of the things you and I have been talking about and, and Morit and, and other people is, oh, yeah, let's all trade the Chinese uh, futures markets. And I was just thinking, should we at some point stop and say, hang on, why would we want to trade markets like that and support their you know, economy, et cetera, et cetera, financial markets, if we are at the same time, and I'm not saying you are or any of the host on, on the podcast here is, but if we are concerned about how they conduct themselves in the world is, I mean, at what point do we say, well, hang on, this is maybe a place where I would say, yeah, I'll, I'll pass on the opportunity because of other things. Is this 
Have you ever thought about it that way? No, but I haven't. But I like your where you're headed, and I think it's a really great topic. I think there's a couple of things going on here, but I was going to bring up, uh, you know, ESG, and ESG is in the mm-hmm. news all the time. And how are CTAs yeah. going to navigate ESG? Oh, we trade futures; we don't have to, or we trade. Let's all move to a few single stocks, and we can trade those stocks. We'll choose those companies based upon the company's ESG ratings. But this is even a better one. Like I think China. Yeah, exactly. So. I don't trade. I could say, okay, I'm not going to trade the Chinese commodities because of uh, kind of this ESG approach towards China. It's not a great country. They're not nice people. And part of ESG is not all about environment. It's about how you treat people and governance. Mm-hmm. And so I think you bring up a very good point that it's definitely something that, that we should be cons- concerned about. And I think it feeds into my other point, which is that those markets are not that reliable. I don't really trust how they manage the markets, and they're, um, you know, the I don't I think I like the U.S. SEC approach and our regulatory bodies. Probably, I feel safer with them than I would the Chinese approach. And so, I, you know, we have a friend Eric Crittenden who yeah. has been on podcast and been very outspoken about never. He doesn't want anything from China in his portfolio. Then the rule of law, you know, if you're going to be shaky on the rule of human rights, you know, you probably can be shaky on other elements of the rule of law as well. So very good topic. I'm just off the top of my head now, but I haven't really thought about it. But I like where you're going. Yeah, no, I'm sorry to spring it like that. The, the reason, and you tying it into ESG is actually quite interesting. I didn't actually think about it in that way because what I can say for sure is ESG is very important even for a futures trader. When you look at the components of an institutional client base, because institutional clients are being pushed very hard in this ESG framework. So I do think it's something that we all have to take serious. Funnily enough, uh, I was speaking with Moritz a few days ago on, on the episode, and he was talking about starting to trade dirty coal, which I thought was quite funny, which is def- definitely must be not on the ESG list of approved markets, I would say. But it is, an, it is very interesting what you say by tying it into ESG, because I think if the institutional crowd starts to do that, we know the firms that have embraced Chinese commodities, etc. It's all the big boys, right? It's all of those who've been there for a few. What if it turns out that people say, well, hang on, our ESG policies do not allow me to invest in these things. Maybe they have to go and look for the slightly small, you know, the next tier down in terms of CTAs, simply for that reason, you know, if the CTA, of course, continues to embrace those. Anyways, I'm sure we'll hear more about it. I just couldn't help thinking about it when I heard Kyle Bass talk about it. thought he made some interesting comments. You brought up something from Florin Court using ETFs. I haven't read the article. Is there something there you wanted to discuss on that? Yeah, I'll post these articles on Twitter. But I was just uh, shocked and amazed that I guess there's websites that will show the positions. You know, maybe they're a couple of months old, but of some of the managers, especially if they trade securities. And I, uh, there's a lot of we've talked about on this podcast a lot of CTAs who really touting three, four hundred, five hundred markets, and some of those are commodities in China, and some are over-the-counter type things. And I just stumbled upon upon Florin Court and Milburn Richfield, 
the reports that came out of the securities that they held, and they're just tremendous positions in ETFs. And I put all of these ETFs that they trade in, according to this report, it's probably even more that, did, that they don't have positions in now, but I put them all on my quote, my chart software, and I went through every one of them, and man, it's so much diversification. And you know, uh, so if they wanted to, to get a position in coal, maybe they'll find a coal ETF or a water ETF, cobalt, lithium ETFs, and so, and then more stocks and more bonds. And so, I think that this is a great avenue that some of these exotic—they call them exotic markets—but what they, right. but maybe a lot of them are just plain old-fashioned ETFs. And we always get these questions from uh, listeners, like, "How do I trade? I'm so small. How do I get diversification?" And I've been saying to people, um, hey, look at the ETFs, currencies, commodities, bond, ETFs. And there's, I use some of the ETFs for some of the fixed income markets that, I, that don't have futures. And I just make sure that they're liquid and that the fees inside the ETF are negligible. But I think hedge funds and CTAs and, uh, are using the heck out of these ETFs to gain some uh, needed diversification. It's funny when you uh, were sitting there talking about ETFs, I remember, and you'll remember this as well, back in the 90s, you could subscribe to a newsletter, a lot of people did, it was actually a physical newsletter called MAR, Managed Account Reports, and it would have a few stories from our industry, and it would show a few league tables, and this was back then when total AUM in the industry was about 10 billion or so, and then I remember that and they, they, these were great. I mean, this was like the Bible you would get every month. You would look forward to reading that uh, managed account report. And then I remember they started producing another a newsletter exactly similar about ETFs. And I thought, what the heck are they, are they doing? Why are they spending so much time doing a whole report about ETFs? And when, you know, managed futures was so much bigger, et cetera, et cetera. But just look at that, like 25 years later, I mean, they've just dwarfed anything else in the world. So they were definitely seeing it much uh, earlier than anyone else, I would say. Now, the final tweet, you, and this is, again, I'm sure it's one of your quotes, humans have a very strong tendency to over-persist. How do we become better, amazing, amazing quitters? What allows us to make great decisions under certain, under uncertainty. Later on, we get to change. People who are great at quitting are completely all, all awesome. I messed that up completely. I'm sorry. It's late over here. It's Thursday. I've been up at 4.30 this morning. So anyways. I love this quote. It's from uh, Resolve Riffs with Annie Duke. And right. I think okay. you know Annie Duke. Oh, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah so I thought it's just kind of a funny way of putting words together that, you know, when something's not going well, you know, get out, do something different. And that's what we do. You know, we take our small losses and we quit on a trade when the, it looks like the trend is um, reversing. We have no conscience. We have no emotions. We have no, we don't buy into loving a stock or loving a company. I was reading something the other day where <clears throat> these uh, fundamental value guys, they'll say things like, my optimal holding period is forever. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I remember Rich saying to us, like, don't let this trade become your little friend. Don't mm. become emotional about it. And I have done that before. I remember being long gold on a breakout and then reading Soros' is long gold. And the world's falling apart. This is years, a few years ago where we had inflation and printing money and all this Fed stuff. But yes, gold, that's what we need to be in because we know gold's going to go up until the federal government gets their act together. 
And then all of a sudden I read months later after we was making money in this trend in gold that Soros sold its gold. I'm like, no. And then gold starts going down and I'm getting out of gold. And I'm like, no, no, gold's got to go up. You know? So you just need to not have those feelings and have these opinions. And then I think to a, lot, to a large degree, we're just, we're, on one hand, we're going to follow these rules and we're going to look silly, but we're going to follow them to the death. We love our system. But then it could say, why did you get out? Well, I said I love my rules. I didn't love the position. So I think quitting on these trades and changing our minds is so important and having a framework and rules base that when we do get to change, and you know, of course, a part of those rules is taking those small losses and getting out. And I was watching a TV show last night, and the coach you know, was a, a comedy over in the US, and it's about this I don't know if you've seen this Ted Lasso, but it's about a... I've seen a lot of uh, yeah. tweets about it. Yeah. yeah. So it's a U.S. coach. I don't know if he coached soccer. I don't think he coached soccer. Probably football. And he somehow gets hired in England to be a, a coach of soccer. <laughs> and so it's ridiculous, right? But he tells one of the players, you know, you need to have like a memory that's 30 seconds long. You know, when you make these mistakes, when you have these losing trades and it's bad performance just 30 seconds and you don't even remember it anymore. And I think that's her point, like to make an a crazy, outrageous point, like we need to have better quitters. We need to be amazing quitters. And But you know, Americans, we never quit. It's don't ever give up. I think the point is just know when to give up and make it a, a maybe have a systematic approach to giving up. I, I love that quote. Yeah. Sure. The Ted Lasso portfolio, perhaps in the future. <laughs> Quick rapid fire, since we're already uh, past the hour mark. Just something I came across. I think you may probably be vaguely familiar with all of these uh, papers that has come out in recent times, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts. I think Quantica was the ones who've been talking a little bit about trend-following performance during different levels of interest rates. I think this is something that certainly I've seen earlier. This is not a new topic per se, but there's always a new twist to these things. And I do think this is something that people may not be really uh, aware of. When you look at, say, bonds, equities, and trend following, but you look at it during different during different periods where interest rates have been significantly different in level, and you see how they compare, is that something you had also read up on? Have you seen that study? I've seen those studies. I think people like to show those charts of what happens when we have these different regime changes or periods, just I think to give people comfort in that, hey, you know, the trend following can do pretty well in all kinds of periods, low inflation, high inflation, low rates, high rates. And But I would part company with people who would try to tilt the portfolio or change the system, add that part to the system to trade larger or smaller in certain markets or due to these uh, different environments. So I'm not for that. And I really honestly haven't seen anyone do that. I think it's I would classify it as sort of irrelevant for all of us. You know, well, big surprise, trend following is going to do well in all kinds of environments. And you know, my opinion as well, if it hasn't done well in a certain environment, it might do well the next time we have that certain environment. Sure. So I'm not big on marketing. I have a, like a zero budget for marketing and I just file that under, you know, things to tell clients to make them feel better. Speaking of marketing, there was a piece out from some of our mutual friends, of course, Winton. They seem to be back loving trend following. They put out, I wouldn't say a paper, but they certainly wrote something that kind of put trend following in a very positive light from their 
point of view after probably a lot of people came across their comments about reducing, not leaving, but reducing trend following's importance for them a few years back. But they seem to be much more positive about the strategy now. Anything you took away from that other than the message, of course? I don't think so. I mean, how can you not be positive now? It'll be fun to watch to see if they evolve more into the trend following or revert back to maybe they will be the ones who kind of choose when to overemphasize or de-emphasize trend following. I think that was part of the paper that they saved their clients some money in the 2010s when uh, trend following wasn't as great as it was before that. And then now they're going to switch back a little bit more to trend following when now there's their analysis shows it's going to it could continue to do better in the future. I reject all of that switching back and forth, like I said, and just do the trades. You know, if, it's, if, if you you can't really predict these markets and what's going to work and how long it's going to work. I don't buy into the super cycle for commodities, and yet 50% of my portfolio is commodities because I don't have to buy into it. And I won't buy into anything that puts a restraint on me just following my breakout systems. Yeah. Final piece of content that I came across from another uh, set of friends of ours from the good people at TransTrend. They put out another piece recently. I thought this is probably the most interesting ones in a sense because I was not entirely sure this meant to how they had navigated COVID. But, But one of the key points they make in this paper is that During COVID, what your normal systems settings could inadvertently have done is to have reduced your exposure dramatically because of the massive expansion in volatility. So essentially what they're saying is that you could end up with uh, a response to COVID leaving you with two two small positions and therefore not really being able to capitalize on what happened next. Now, I can't read from this between the lines whether they made some changes at the time, which couldn't have been based on previous data because that data didn't exist, or whether this is something that have led them to make changes subsequently. So I don't know. I don't want to make a call on that. But it's an interesting point that, of course, that we look at volatility as a key. I mean, in the old days, we used it really just for reporting purposes. Now it's a key component in our models when it comes to risk management. And it is true that you could certainly have ended up with relatively small positions last year because of the expansion in in volatility. So I don't know if you read the paper, what your thoughts are, and yeah. Yeah, I read the paper, and I didn't really understand too much of it. I it would be great to have Harold in the clubhouse or on Explain the podcast. Explain it to us. Yeah. Please. You know, but... I will say that when I, as I was reading it, I, I remember reading how you described it, and I th- initially thought, well, I don't care. I'm not going to change my trade sizing, so I'm going to use the ATR, and so I'm going to use the ATR the way I always have to size my trades. So if he's saying that, well, don't use the ATR during COVID because your positions will be really small. And so, but now I'm thinking he may not have been saying that. He may have been saying there's other ways that there's other things that impact the size of the trade. That's right. And that would be AUM. 
your trade level, how are you sizing, how are you calculating trade level, or maybe vol targeting. So you put on, he's okay, maybe they're okay with putting on the trade at the breakout with, with the ATR concept, but then as the markets get more volatile, you would have to reduce your positions. Well, I'm dead set against that. So is it trade level? Is it vol targeting? Is it the initial position that you should not pay attention to this volatility? I'm not really sure where he was coming from on that, but out, out of, I've never traded smaller in my entire life than I trade now, and I've made more money in the past 12 months than I probably made in 10, 15 years. So yeah. I did not have that, that issue he brought up did not have an impact on me coming out of COVID, i.e. trading too small. Now, maybe I should have traded even larger and made even more. I'm not sure. Right. Okay. Well, we'll have to wait for next time Harold finds his way to the mic and explain it all to us. Just a quick update on performance again for the industry. I can pretty much do it in one line and that is nothing much has changed so far in August. I'm not even going through each individual because they're like plus minus 20 basis point so far this month. So nothing dramatic happening right now in the CTA space in terms of performance for uh, the current month, which of course is only a few days old. Anything else, Jerry, that you can think of? I think we did a pretty good job on this more uh, improvised version of the podcast. And I appreciate your flexibility jumping on early with me. Yeah, now there was another interesting tweet about the orange juice trade, and it's been uh, volatile and it's big breakout that crashed, kind of like maybe uh, coffee, big breakout kind of crashed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. So I'm watching those trades. They're kind of funny, but there was a tweet sort of uh, saying that was pretty obvious that we shouldn't have gone long, OJ. So uh, due to the commitment of traders report. So it's a combination of the breakout was crazy and then commitment of traders report. And so I'm saving those tweets. And so hopefully this orange juice will take off and I can talk bad about commitment of traders and paying attention to anything other than just the breakouts. But, you know, I think I'm still sitting with my coffee and OJ positions and we'll see what happens. They're kind of fun and it's an interesting way of uh, trading the markets. I know you took some profits in coffee, you said, last week. So. Yeah, my system got stopped yeah. out uh, a couple of times with a little bit of a profit on yeah, both. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. And uh, it's kind of kind of fun yeah, watching that. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Well, follow Jerry on Twitter to uh, follow those markets and the tweets that will follow. We're going to wrap it up for this week. I appreciate you listening to us on this slightly different uh, episode, but hopefully you got lots of value from it. As mentioned earlier, please take five minutes of your time and uh, leave a rating and review. They help much more than you can ever imagine. Next weekend, it'll be Mark's turn to come back. So you'll have a different perspective, of course. So make sure you send your questions, uh, email them to info at toptradersonplot.com. We'll do our best to answer those. And in the meantime, from Jerry and me, thanks so much for listening. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. 
And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.